Okay, so Romans 8, verse uh, 1 to 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Okay, yep. Let me give you the aim where we're going. Uh, I want to play a part in the next, uh, tonight, tomorrow night and the last session in leading us to run churches that are spiritually powerful. So what I want to hope to do amongst us is establish churches, encourage churches to not just do church, but become spiritual powerhouses that are actively working in the supernatural. That's where I'm going. That are properly seeing a spiritual impact. Now, I hope that's an attractive ambition for you. That's uh, the big thing of what we're doing in the next couple of days to create spiritual powerhouses amongst us. But I want to set your expectations appropriately for tonight. There is that stat, if you have not picked it up yet, from the research that uh, churches grow faster when your expectations are set correctly. Well, you listen better when your expectations are set correctly too. This is going to be a lot of work tonight. You've, you've had the love from Toby. It's none, none of that now. It's all stainless steel. All right? So uh, get set. Uh, we're going to do a bunch of work. We're going to lay some foundations uh, we're going to do a lot of work in the Bible, and I'm going to use as a foil the C.S. Lewis quote that's a fairly famous one. It's a good quote, but it's often used badly. There are two equal and opposite areas into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an unhealthy interest in them. That's a pretty good quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, it's used often, though, poorly, I think, as people often don't remember it correctly, but then apply it, think about it. What I've found is that often people translate that into... The two problems are you can think too little about uh, the demonic, the spiritual realm, or too much about it. And when you put it that way, it can sound like this. It can sound the problem is insufficient balance. There are those churches that, that they're aware of a spiritual realm but don't think about it much, engage with it much. There are those that are aware but think about it too much. We've just got to be that middle church that uh, is aware and engaged in an appropriately balanced way. I want to suggest to you tonight that's not the solution. There are two extremes, to think too little about the spiritual realm, to think too much about it. 
they are problems, but not because they think too little or too much. That's not the problem. Each is bred in a climate that's profoundly unbiblical. Both of them, to think too little, too much. One extreme, the too little extreme, is often bred by a worldview, uh, not simply lack of thought, but it's bred by a worldview, a worldview you'd call naturalism or materialism, where there's nothing more than simply nature and matter. Uh, It's a view that the universe and humanity is nothing more than our physical atoms, uh, the, the chemical, biological, the physical, the thing that makes us work in the here and now, the physical, tangible... Um, and, and that breeds certainly too little thought about spiritual things, but it isn't sufficient to go, let's just ramp up how much we think. That's not the solution. There is a total misunderstanding about the nature of existence that operates in that way of operating. But the other extreme, the too much, we think too much about these things, I'm going to suggest requires an even deeper critique. Very often... The wing of the Christian church that plays too much attention to spiritual things, the invisible, the demonic and spirits and so on, it it pays too much attention because it actually carries a pagan worldview into the way it thinks about them. And so that requires a significant biblical discernment and engagement together. My point is to get this area right takes far greater care than simply balancing two extremes. Do you know the kind of reformed evangelical wing that seems to think too little and the kind of the, the extreme wing that thinks too much? Let's balance. That's not the way forward. So we're going to dig into the word, but as we do, be aware of instincts and the danger of our instincts. We're going to do a lot of work in the word, but beware of your instincts. Do you know how instincts operate? Inst- you bring instincts to certain things to actually make sense of them very quickly. You, know, you go down the beach to the surf and you, um, you look for a safe place to swim with the kids and so you find a spot where the waves aren't breaking, where it's flat and still, and you jump in there. That's the instinct saying, where's the safe place? But you know what's going on there, don't you? The reason it's flat and still is because that's where the rip is. It's the most dangerous place. But my instinct looks at it and sees... Um, your instincts think that if I can just love my... I've got a new child. I, I love this child. I invest in this child. And my instinct says that we'll grow together as this happy family where the kids are all loving and nice towards me. But they turn into two-year-olds and I just don't understand that. Instinct said it shouldn't have worked. I had this great conversation years ago with this... Um, I, I play sport with a bunch of non-Christian friends and so on. We do a lot of this every week. And I was sitting with one of them uh, and uh, I, he's had a child about 18 months earlier. And I said, how's it going? And he said, you wouldn't believe it. I said, tell me what's going on. He said, we've loved this child. We've poured our heart out into this child and, and she's rude to us. <laughs> and I did what you just did. I'm laughing, thinking you've gotten... What? That's a surprise. But your instincts, naturally, if you've kind of been raised in our climate, is to think that if I just love the child to grow up. Your instinct says, when your wife comes out ready to go somewhere and she says, do I look too fat in this dress? Your instinct says it's just an ordinary question. But it's not. It's a, very, it's a very deep question. Take great care there. There's a, anything you need to work back into the way you understand what's going on. Instincts are dangerous. Let me give you this. Just imagine this situation. A girl rushes up to you in a group. You're, you're standing with a group of people. A girl rushes up and says breathlessly, I've been attacked by a demon. Now, in that group are two instinctive reactions. The first one is she's got to be on medication. She's forgotten to take it. There's one quick reaction that will happen in the group. But here's the other one. Um, That's interesting. And the automatic assumption seems to be, without being told, 
I know what she's going to say next. Now, what do you think she's going to say next? She's going to describe the demonic experience. What kind of words do you think she'll use to express uh, an engagement with Satan? What kind of words would you imagine that will come out? You think about it. Dread, oppression, darkness. These instinctively are words that we associate with the demonic and the power of the demonic. Now, where does that come from? The first reaction, she must be on medications for God. That comes from naturalism. If you've been university educated, the whole education system in our world is orientated towards materialism, naturalism. So if you've had much of that education, that'll be the way you tend to instinct. It'll shape the way you instinctively react. But there is another assumption that operates amongst us that's come from, I don't know, you call it folk religion, paganism in its proper sense, unsophisticated perhaps, movies, popular literature. I want to say to you, beware your instincts as we come to all this. You've got to work at the scriptures and let the Bible shape your thinking, not your instincts, not your experiences. Let the Bible radically shape our thinking. So let's deal with the first one. So tonight, two halves. Uh, I'm going to deal firstly with the problem of too little and then secondly, too much. So break it up simply into two halves. The first one is this. Um, It isn't just a failure to pay enough attention to the spirit realm. That's not the problem. It's a failure to see properly what the world is and what a human is. This is deep and profound. When you uh, come to the beginning of the Bible, let me, in fact, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Let's do this quickly now. Genesis chapter 1. You come to almost the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the heaven was for, earth was formless, empty. Darkness was over the surface of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right at the very beginning of the Bible is a, a, a comment about the nature of our existence, that it's not just material, there is a spirit. There is God who is spirit, who is hovering. The world is not simply material matter. Now, there's a very, if you've not read this book, Nagel, it's um, Thomas Nagel, a New York philosopher on um, mind and cosmos. found it fascinating. It's actually worth... Um, it's worth chasing up. It's actually from an atheist who's reflecting on existence and reflecting on the fact that there's got to be more than matter. Worth chasing up. But the Bible says it from the beginning. The world is not just matter. Uh, creation comes into being. Before it comes into being, there is this God who is not material. Humanity. You come along, come across to chapter, uh, two verse, chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, there is some debate about whether breathing into his nostrils is actually breathing in spirit or simply like the animals, breathing in a life, just to animate the, uh, the being. But it does seem clear as you go through the rest of the scriptures, of course, that, that if it's not the language of um, spirit, uh, then the rest of the clear, Bible makes that clear that that is a reality for us that we are mind and spirit. And, and given to the kind of ambiguity with the word breath, it could well be in this context that's what's intended as well, that we are mind and spirit. You remember Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says, um, do not fear him who can kill the body and after that do nothing more. Fear him who kills, can kill the body and cast body and soul into hell. We are body and spirit. We are not just material. The essence of the Christian experience Romans chapter 8, 
is spirit experience. In fact, come with me to Romans chapter. I want to show you something that I hope you're aware of, but if you've not, it's important to get hold of this. Have a look at Romans chapter 8. There's a lot of discussion about the spirit church versus the non-spirit church, if you like. That kind of um, the sign of some is one and the other not. But if you look at Romans chapter 8 carefully, of course, it's quite clear that um, verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. We are, in essence, spirit Christians. That's Christian is to be a spirit, to be in the realm of the spirit. That's the work of God to bring us into that realm. It's the very character and shape and nature of our life. You, you, you can grieve the spirit. You can walk in disobedience to the spirit. You cannot keep in step with the spirit, yes. But you are, if you're a Christian, a spirit believer. You are in the realm of the spirit. But it's all deeper than this. To think of, conceive of the world and the person as simply matter, the Bible won't allow it. There is a whole dimension to our existence that is non-material. But it's deeper than this. How do you think about the salvation narrative? How do you think about the salvation narrative? What is the problem that Christ comes to solve? I think typically we, we see this expressed in one of two ways. The, the problem that Christ comes to solve is legal, is one way. We conceive the problem as humans having broken a set of laws, God's laws, and God the judge passes judgment and brings condemnation on us. There's the problem, it's a legal problem. The solution is a saviour who comes to pay the legal debt, to stand in our place under punishment, fulfil the requirements of the law and so be condemned so that we can be forgiven. It's a legal problem and a legal solution. Another way to conceive the kind of salvation narrative, you know, problem legal, solution legal, the other way to conceive of it typically for us is relational. So the problem is humans have hurt God. They've betrayed God, they've offended him, they've betrayed him by committing spiritual adultery. Their broken relationship. The solution? Well, Jesus comes to show us how much the Father loves us, how much he wants us back, and so he brings us to our senses, like Luke 15 and the prodigal son. He brings us to our senses with the love displayed on the cross that we might turn and come back into relationship with God the Father. Be reconciled to God the Father. Now, are those two ways of conceiving the salvation narrative wrong? No, they're both right. They're both good. But these tend to be the only way many Christians see the story of the Bible, the problem-solution. You come back to Genesis with me. Come back to Genesis 3 and you now know where I'm going. Come back to Genesis 3 and it's very obvious, isn't it? By the time you come to chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent suddenly appears, was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, of course, the language of serpent, when you chase through, say, to the book of Revelation, it's quite clear it's an image of, of Satan um, is it Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20? You pick up that uh, connection. But what you have here is the appearance of a spiritual being who 
is an enemy of God. Did, verse, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit and so on, but God did so on. You will surely not die, verse 4, the, enemy, the, woman, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. He cast aspersions on God's goodwill. He's an enemy. He's an he's a adversary of God who appears in the garden at the very beginning. Now, um, we don't know where he's come from particularly. Uh, but what is evident is that from the beginning, this spiritual being has already turned away from God. He has already set himself against God. And right there is a slight window into a reality that is unseen, typically. That there has been and is a vast rebellion against the spirit God in the heavenly realms. That is a reality outside of us, beyond us. There are spiritual forces that have set themselves up against God. And that's the case from the beginning. Now, how and when that happened, we're not told. Isaiah 28 is probably not a reference to the fall of Satan. But you get in 2 Peter 2 and and Jude 6, other allusions to that kind of experience. And this rebellion in the heavenlies is in search of subjects, us. Chapter 3 is the account of Satan winning humanity to himself which he achieves by the process of temptation and accusation. And so begins the human part in this spiritual battle against God. Now, throughout the scriptures, you get this occasional window into this larger reality, the reality of spiritual forces battling against the divine God in conflict with God. You'll know some of these. Job, you get just a slight window into Satan coming into the throne room of God. Uh, Daniel 10, you get mention of angels battling. You you get um, a lying spirit. You get Satan tempting King David. You come into the New Testament, you get Satan tempting King Jesus. And then the massive appearance of demonic possession. These are each windows into this, this reality outside of us, over us, around us, of a spiritual reality of which we're part. There is far more going on in our universe than merely the material. Now, knowing this isn't just academic. It's not just of interest. It actually goes to the heart of understanding the world and ourselves. Let me give you one piece particularly. In a world dominated by naturalism and materialism, it's actually hard to keep hold of the category called evil. When people do horrendous things, our naturalistic society, our society that thinks materialistically that's all there is is matter, when someone does horrendous things, our assumption typically is that it's a physical problem that they've done it because their biology's gone wrong, their chemistry's uh, askew, their parenting was bad, their context is difficult, their education is... We look to physical problems. Um, An evil person isn't evil, they have a disorder. 
or a dysfunction. And the solutions end up being physical. So the evil person or the person who's dysfunctional, we seek to medicate or put through therapy or educate. Educate's a big one at the moment, which makes that old joke work about lawyers. Do you remember that joke? What do you do when you educate a thief? You get a lawyer. It kind of it doesn't change the behaviour, it just changes the profession where they do that behaviour in. Um, but here's the thing. There is more going on in and with humans than can be reduced to the physical. In fact, turn up 1 John 5. Come there. Key verse, it's worth looking at. 1 John 5. Look at verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We are caught up in a spiritual battle around us, in us, And we are in over our heads. We are in over our heads. There are spiritual forces arrayed against us that are greater than we can battle. Knowing that is important. We need this insight. We need to make sense of ourselves and our world and to make sense of what's needed to solve the problem. The problem with our society won't be solved by education. It won't be solved by medication or counselling or therapy. We don't need better accountabilities to solve the problem. What is required is, you know the answer, what's required is a defeat of spiritual forces. Absolutely clear in the scriptures. That's why I come back to chapter 3. It's worth being in 1 John. Come back to chapter 3. Look at verse 8. The the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Just pause and meditate. The reason... The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. I just think, which of us would have written that verse? Do you know what I mean? Which of us would have conceived the spiritual realities in such a way to think that's why Christ came? Which of us think of that as we're engaged in ministry, that that's why Christ came? To destroy the work of of the devil. Do you say, I, I think this is a massive challenge for us who have, been, who have been raised through the education system into universities, most of us, into colleges, many of us. It's a kind of education has been a massive piece for our lives, and all of that has done its job on us. It, it has shaped us in the way we think about existence, not, not simply that we think little of the spiritual realm but we actually think about existence and humanity in a very different way than the Bible does. 
That is a profound problem. We, we end up running book reading clubs as churches. You know, we end up running churches as if all I've got to do is explain the syntax and the grammar, present the text, and, and I've done my job. And if we can just understand, if we can just win the war of ideas, we'll have won. If I can just persuade someone to think differently, it'll all be okay. My task is accomplished. Or if I can just get the management worked out better. Now, I'm big on organising things. But, but if we think if, if I can just get that sorted, it'll all go... Or if we just get the PR functioning well. This is the one I'm sensing in the last five, ten years. If we can just make Christians look nicer, then the world won't be so down on us and we'll have a great win. There is so much more going on in our world. Why is the media the way it is? Why does it act towards Christians the way it does? Why are the social forces around us shifting and directing the way they're going? Why is the soil so hard? There's a spiritual thing happening. Now, how do we engage properly? How do we engage so that those forces, those spiritual forces are engaged with and defeated? That's the key piece that I want us to wrestle with over the next two days. Now, what's the first simple answer? It's got to be prayer. Yeah? If this doesn't, if this doesn't arouse in you an awareness that prayer has got to be a major piece in the way I think about my ministries, then you have not captured at all the kind of problem we're in. It needs an appeal to the God who is spirit, the sovereign God, to act amongst us as a matter of great urgency before anything else. And its lack of prayer, its lack in our lives, in our ministries, is a sign of a number of things. But one of the things it's a sign, it's a sign of struggles in all kinds of areas, but it's a sign of a failure to see what the real problem is around us. This reorientation, I want to suggest, is a massive challenge, especially for those of us who have been well-educated, who have been shaped to have instincts that are more naturalistic, more materialistic. This is a particular challenge for us. At the heart of the universe and our existence is a spiritual battle with spiritual forces real. We do not battle against flesh and blood, says Paul. We'll come to that in, on Wednesday. We, we, we're actually, our war is against forces arrayed against us in the heavenly realms. There's the first half. Second half. You ready? Let's now deal with the side where there's often a great deal of thought about spiritual things, about demons, angels, and a lot of attention to the invisible realm. We're halfway through, so expectations. Now, on this side, the Bible brings a profoundly important critique, and we need to do some work. The first thing I want to do is clear the ground by looking at the Old Testament and then the New Testament. Let me... Um, let me show you, I've got a list of passages, the big passages in the Old Testament about the um, spiritual. Let's see if we've got those. There, there are the passages, Genesis 3, 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 28, 1 Kings 22, Job and Zechariah. There, there are your kind of big passages in the Old Testament that reference 
the demonic, the spiritual realm. Um, just, just, you know, you, you know what there, um, to, just to quickly reflect for you, there's, you've got the um, temptation in the garden, uh, a, a spirit um, tormenting Saul, you've got um, uh, uh, pursuing the witch, you've got um, a lying spirit, you've got Satan coming to Job, and you've got um, uh, Satan accusing the high priest. So there's, there's the key big passages that are going on there. And I want to show you actually another one. There's one Chronicles 20, 21, which I, for some reason is not up there. But, but just notice that for a second. What I want you to notice is this. There's not many. That, that's not an insignificant observation. There aren't many. Two points I want to draw attention from the Old Testament. The first is this. When you do look at the texts, what is clear is that God is in absolute and total control over the demonic. First big thing to get. Let me pick uh, some key ones. In the garden, Satan is betrayed as sneaky. He's a quiet deceiver. But where does he end up and how? God just crushes him, puts him in his place and gives the punishment as he sees fit and Satan is bound by it. 1 Samuel 16, uh, the evil spirit and Saul. Who sends the evil spirit? Do you remember? It's God. I mean, God rules the evil spirits and sends them where he wants. What? Job, Satan has to come and ask God permission to do what he does. And he's given certain boundaries and even the horrors that end up befalling Satan by, the, by Job, by the hand of Satan, is shown to be God who gives and takes. Do you remember? Such is the power of God over the demonic. Satan only does what God allows. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Just for a moment, do you see the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, what you have—you don't have two powerful forces vying for control. So call it a battle. It's a kind of weird way to talk about a battle when it's completely one-sided. God just triumphs and rules totally. His rule is challenged, yes, but his rule is challenged by one who is totally at his mercy. So it's hardly much of a challenge. God allows and permits and wills Satan's activity only to further his own. Now, this is striking. It is particularly striking in its day and it's striking today. Let me tell you how it's striking in its day. Israel, in its day, was surrounded by nations who were very aware of spiritual powers and forces. They were very aware of the demonic and possession and powers of spirituals. All of that was very much part of their existence. Um, most troubles in the ancient other nations were explained by the demonic. You know, something didn't go right and it was some power or some spirit that was... They were very engaged and aware. Now, the danger for us is this. We hear that heightened awareness of the spirit realm amongst the nations... And we lament our own lack of awareness and say, how in touch were they with the spirit realm? But here's the thing. 
The Bible never applauds how in touch they are. It firstly speaks far less about these forces than the nations spoke. You saw how few times it actually ever pays attention to them. It speaks far less. And when it does speak about the spiritual forces, it brings a totally different framework. It brings a totally different way of thinking than the pagans thought. It brings the thought that says they're totally under God's control. There isn't this terse and fierce battle. The God of Israel isn't in some combat with the spiritual forces. They're real, yes, but entirely subordinate to God is the biblical presentation. Now, I don't know if you remember, but there was a book many years ago this probably just dates me now, doesn't it? But uh, This Present Darkness, Frank Peretti, some of you remember. Um, it, uh, there was a number, he wrote a number of books about the spiritual realm and so on. And uh, This Present Darkness, I think from memory was his first one, where he portrays a spiritual battle happening in a small town in America. And uh, the opening scene is uh, uh, a demonic uh, image, a, a, a being trying to attack a man of prayer and two angels appear and uh, drive him off. And one, one of the angels says, and when they start talking about how much demonic they're seeing evidenced in the town, and one of the angels says um, something like, I've never seen this much demonic activity. Do you think we'll win? And the other angel goes, we'll fight. No acknowledgement that the victory is ours but just the insistence that at least we'll fight and then the book is driven by a desire to get more people to pray because if we can pray the angels will have greater power to win the battle eventually and so we're it's up to us to pray now it was a great motivation for prayer back in the day when we all read that book but it was driven by pagan mythology it was driven by a whole pagan way of thinking about the spiritual realm written by a man who was of the church, who brought into the church pagan thinking. Now, if there's not an irony, I don't know what is. Terrible tragedy. It, it was writing from a culture, the pagan culture, which the Bible was written to critique. You see? The Bible was written to say, that way of thinking is actually pagan and opposed to the understanding properly of God, who is sovereign, who has no great battle, who stands against and always wins. You see, we need to clear up the way we think about spiritual warfare from the very beginning. So the first piece was, God is sovereign. There is no battle in that sense that we often use the word. I'll give you the second. The second piece to get when you're engaging in the Bible's view of spiritual warfare is, next principle, Humans are always responsible. Humans are always responsible. Even when the demonic is powerfully at work. Let me take you to one small incident. Uh, I want you to look up two passages, and you're going to have to use pieces of your anatomy to make this work. I want you to look up 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24. So you'll need to keep both passages open well. Shut and open, shut and open. 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24. 
Now, let me give you a little bit of background here. These passages both speak of the same incident. So you have the same incident being reflected on from different writers, okay? Um, let me uh, give you one. So, if you've got your, so you can flip back and forward. If I said, what have I said? One Chronicles. Did I say two? I think I meant two. One Chronicles 21. I've mixed up my, as I've gone through. Yep, one Chronicles 21. So Satan, let me give you to Satan, one Chronicles 21, we're there. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Satan rose up against Israel, incited David to take a census. So to count the number of uh, Israel that it might be a, of a sense of his power is in human hands. You see how many we've got, there's our power. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab, Joab replied, said, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over my Lord the king. Are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? So this is an inappropriate thing to do, you see, uh, to find your confidence in numbers. Um, and Satan has incited him to do it. Now, keep your hand there because I'm going to come back to that in a second. Come back to 2 Samuel 24. Have a look at verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes, enroll the fighting men. So I know Joab replied, may the Lord your God... Do you see the same incident? This is a bad thing to do. Don't do this thing. Um, it reinforces the point. Um, but, um, but what you've got here is Satan rising up to incite. But we're told in 2 Samuel 24 that God rose up and incited. Um, now, what do you make of that? Well, what it's doing for you is underlining the first point, which is God's in control of Satan. Satan rises up to incite David only by the will of God, who's determined to punish his people and so can be said to stand behind the activity of Satan doing this. But what I want you to notice is this. Come back to Run Chronicles again. Look at verse 8. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Do you find that odd? I thought Satan made him do it. But what David does is he acknowledges that it's his sin and he is responsible. Come back to 2 Samuel 24. Look at verse 17. When David saw the angel who was striking to the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but your sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. What you've got is quite a complex understanding of existence right here. God is sovereign, works through Satan, who incites David. It's called dual agency, so that the one incident can be traced back to two agents who cause it to happen. 
God, the sovereign God over Satan, makes it happen. But what you've got is a third agent, triple agency, David, who is held responsible and punished for his activity. Now, this kind of stuff's hard for us. Instincts betray us. Our instincts tell us that if an evil spirit incites a human to do evil, then who's responsible? The evil spirit. But what the Bible tells you is if an evil spirit incites a human, who's responsible? The spirit and the person. Both are held accountable because both are responsible. And particularly what the Bible does is it majors on the human responsibility. It focuses there. The Bible presents this triple agency. And this part explains why there's so little about the demonic and satanic in the Old Testament. Why is there so little? Because despite the spiritual impact of these evil forces, humans, as God's image bearers, are truly the responsible creatures in all the events. And it's their responsibility and accountability that God cares about most particularly. It's their problem. They aren't victims and they can't blame the powers. They're human and always carry responsibility for whatever happens. They are made to be responsible because they're made in the image of God to be responsible creatures. You know, I... um, we, we, my wife and I sometimes leave our kids at home on their own. I mean, the eldest is 12 and it's all okay. But uh, we leave them at home. They're actually a bit older than that. But we leave them at home on occasions when we're away for quite some time. And uh, there was one occasion we came back and despite my desperate texting, your mother's about to come home, make sure the house is... We came home, the place was trashed. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I grabbed the kids, hit them up and they said, look, it wasn't us. Uh, and I say, but, but you're the key players here. This is our house. You're our kids. This is your home. You're the ones who, who want to take responsibility. Now, in, that's an illustration of the point I'm making. And in the illustration, my kids are the humans and the friends who came around who trashed the place are the demons. Right? That's how the illustration... <laughs> if you haven't worked that out, that's how the illustration works. All right? So the demonic appeared, okay, and they're the... But, <laughs> But they together trashed the place. Perhaps my kids were passive, but they shouldn't have been. You see, because they're my kids in my home, their home. And I think what the New Testament, the Old Testament is particularly, I'll show you the New Testament in a second. What the Bible is saying to us is, the reason it focuses on the human, though recognising the other powers at work, is because humans are God's image bearers. You and I are the ones who carry the responsibility despite the other forces at work. The point here is the Old Testament doesn't endorse pagan emphasis on the spirit world. It doesn't endorse pagan emphasis upon the demonic. It minimizes Satan and gives a very different explanation for human sin and suffering. Human sin and suffering, according to the Old Testament, comes from the human heart. Yes, you can trace it back and see a demonic that's operating, Satan inciting, but it's the heart that's desperately wicked. 
Jeremiah 17. That is, the Old Testament unmasks the obsession of the nations with their demonic explanations and their avoidance of human responsibility. Do you see? It, it unmasks their obsession with demonic explanations and the undermining of human responsibility. And it will not have it because we're God's image bearers. Let me give you the other half of this second part. It's the New Testament. And I'm going to make many of the same points and do it fairly quickly with us. But come with me to Luke chapter 1 just to uh, give some sense of this going through Luke's gospel. When you hit the New Testament, what is clearly evident is that there is a very heightened experience of the demonic. In fact, there's a very heightened experience of the supernatural, the spirit, uh, the angelic. So, so I'm going to race through this, but Luke chapter 1 verse 11 the angel of the Lord appeared to him. An angel appears. In verse 26, the angel appears to Mary. And then you've got verse 35, the Holy Spirit overshadows her. And then you've got chapter 2. You see, I'm rushing through this. You've got chapter 2, verse 9. Um, you've got the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around. The angel's appearing again. You've got 2.25, the Holy Spirit has come on the prophet. And verse 27, he's moved by the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 16, you've got Jesus baptized in the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 11, he's full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, a temptation that he stands in, of course, unbroken by. And chapter 4, verse 18, you've got now the Spirit of the Lord's... His ministry begins in chapter 4, and he begins with a healing on the Sabbath. Uh, so race through to chapter 4 with me. Uh, he, he begins with a healing on the Sabbath, and then verse 33... In the synagogue, there's a man with a demon, an impure spirit. He casts out that demon, do you remember? And verse 40, he heals and casts out. You've got this incredibly heightened experience of the spirit realm, the angelic, the demonic. Now, why is that? I mean, let's, we haven't got time to go through that tonight. But, but notice again the two points from the Old Testament that appear again here. Notice again the absolute and total control that Jesus has over the demonic. When Satan tempts him in the wilderness, how does he respond? He simply declares the truth of the scriptures and Satan flees. He's got nothing. What happens when he deals with the demonic in chapter 4, verse 33? Jesus just speaks a word. There's no shouting. There's no wrestling, just stern words. And everybody notices the power. In chapter 8 of Luke's gospel, verse 28, the demons beg Jesus. Do you remember? Send us. Don't. Send. They're totally at the mercy of Jesus. You have the absolute and total control of God over the demonic realm in the New Testament. I'll give you the second piece, though. Humans remain totally responsible. Think with, this, think with me about this. Possession, people are possessed by the demonic in the New Testament, almost always only impacts the physical, not the moral. I think I can make a case that it never impacts the moral. But possession, possession by a demon, almost never impacts the moral, just the physical. Have a look at Matthew chapter 12. Let's see if we can pick up a couple of passages here. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. You notice this. Then he brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Demon possession impacted his physical. He was blind and mute. And notice the language is Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Have a look at Matthew 17. Verse 15. The Lord Lord have mercy on my son, he said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And then Jesus, you remember, casts out. Um, Verse 18, rebukes the demon. What you have is the demonic possession impacting the physical. When Jesus casts out a demon, it's described as a healing. There's not a moral dimension to these things any more than a fever is a moral thing. Notice that firstly. Secondly, where the language does suggest something like possession being connected to moral, and I'd suggest, I don't think the language is quite a possession actually, but play this one out with me for a moment. Where the language suggests possession, say Satan entering Judas... Luke 22, in fact, look up Luke, let's go there, have a look at Luke 22. Verse 3, Satan enters Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. You've got Satan now enters Judas, but notice what verse 22 does. Verse 22 of that chapter does exactly the same thing the Old Testament did with David. Judas has entered Satan to bring about the betrayal of Jesus to death. But look at verse 22. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. Jesus doesn't go, the demons, they're dogs, aren't they? Poor Judas. No, Satan's entered Judas, inciting Judas to betray Jesus, and yet responsibility for that act is sheeted back to Judas. Third thing, the New Testament emphasises human responsibility by its explicit teaching. So James 1, we sin when we are drawn away by our own evil desires. You with me? So when you look closely, the picture emerges of demonic and satanic activity that, that are very different to our instincts. It's very different from modern Westerners who are trying to be more aware of the spiritual realm, more attuned to the spiritual realm. Typically, they're brought into pagan constructs where God is not as sovereign and humans aren't as responsible. They do it by this, by blaming sin on demonic spirits instead of calling on people to take responsibility. Your addiction to lust is not the demon of lust. It's your responsibility. It's your sin, do you see? Though there may be some demonic inciting or influence, it's your responsibility, says the Bible. Don't teach or blame the spirits. 
We buy into pagan constructs when we set up a kind of dualism where we portray the spiritual war as as an uncertain tussle between good and evil. Sometimes good is on top, sometimes evil is on top. Or we do it by attributing good things to God and bad things to Satan. Again, my age, World Trade Centre. I remember where I was when it happened. Um, uh, And uh, I remember the the whole Christian response was quite telling in that um, uh, some actually drew attention to the fact that God stands behind this in some fashion. But there was a big backlash that my God does good things This, at the very least, is demonic, satanic, or evil human. That is not biblical thinking. Failing to appreciate triple agency, at the very least. You know, um, Daniel, in the Old Testament, does speak of spiritual forces at war in chapter 10. But he says this in chapter 4, that God's dominion is an eternal dominion. All the peoples of earth are as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand. The God of the Bible, the true God, is speaking into the world of foolish pagan mythology, which our instincts make us prone to hold. And he's saying to those that are his, if you're in my hands... You need never fear. Whether you are caught up in good or evil, I rule over all and I only allow what I permit and allow for my larger purposes. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ ever. Can demonic? Never. When you grab the biblical truth in the midst of a truly spiritual reality where there are principalities and powers... You are with a God who keeps you secure and able to sleep well, trusting in him. There is so much literature and fiction, even among Christians, that makes the spiritual battle look like, well, a battle. When it's not, it it, it makes it look like a great wrestling with spiritual beings. But the New Testament doesn't look like that at all. It wasn't called spiritual warfare in the New Testament. It was the same category as healing. And the outcome of the battle, rather than battle, the outcome was clear. Now, these are are, what I'm wanting to lay down tonight are foundational issues to build on in the next couple of sessions. But I want to just quickly offer some implications and whether we have time for questions or not, we'll see. But um, I want to just offer some quick implications to join some of the dots for you. Um, Living with dread of spiritual forces is not Christian. Living with dread about spiritual forces is not Christian. To be in dread of a house that feels possessed. (laughs) Who who is your God? You don't need to fear. Um, We need to be aware and concerned to take care, more in the third talk. Um, But dread ought never be part of our emotional response. I was was speaking on some of these things in another context and a young guy came to see me and he said, um, he, he looked kind of green, he, he said, I've just, I was going to shave and in the mirror a demonic appearance came. And um, now how do you pastor that? And he said it was terrifying. How do you pastor? And he said this demon looked at him and smiled at him 
how do you pastor? For what it's worth, this is what I did. I said, he said, did you think it was real? And I said, whether it's real or not, just smile back and wink. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) what's it going to do? It's stuck in a mirror. Do you mean like, (laughs) you've got the Lord God as your Lord. You're in Christ. Whether it's real or not, sure it is. Let's assume it is. But nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's a great comfort and strength. Be aware too that our struggles in ministry aren't merely physical. Complacency and tiredness have many physical roots. But they also have roots into spiritual realities and temptations. So respond to them by prayer. Prayer. You know, the unbelief that's around us in the world, the apathy concerning the things of Christ, is evidence that 1 John 5 is right. Our world is under the control of Satan. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Pray about those problems as your first instinct. And and things in our churches. Um, uh, Apathy and complacency in our churches. Disunity in our churches, backstabbing in our churches, power struggles in our churches, hardness to the word of God. You need to call people on these things as responsible beings. Call them on it. And pray. And disciple. These are signs of spiritual problems and the solution is discipling people, deepening people in their walk with Christ. And I want to come to this tomorrow. You know, the lack of giving in church, the lack of support for the gospel efforts in church are spiritual problems. They're spiritually rooted. And so engage with them spiritually. Disciple people in the things of Christ. Spiritual issues stand at the centre of more than we often allow. I'm very big on managing and organising and get our, getting ourselves disciplined to work out how to manage strategically. I'm very, if you know, I'm big on that. But that's my second, third, fourth instinct, not my first. My first instinct is disciple people. Don't be surprised at opposition around us. The world isn't objective. I keep, I, just my little rant for a second. Christians at the moment keep making it sound like The reason people are against us is because we've got a persecution complex. It's because we've been too harsh. It's because we've challenged and confronted instead of coming alongside. No, no, no. The reason people are against us is because they're under the sway of Satan. The world is opposed to the gospel. It's opposed to the growth of the cause of Christ. What do you expect? Engage with wisdom and innocence and pray. 1 Timothy 2, for our rulers and all in authority. Pray to the God who wants all to be saved, knowing there is a mediator who has won the victory. All of this shapes us in how we think and engage. There you go. There's some beginnings tonight. So.